Today's episode is sponsored by you and others like you who have pledged a flexible monthly donation through the Urban Achiever Patreon page. Please consider becoming a contributor by visiting patreon.com slash urbanachiever. And thank you for your support. Achievers, it's me, your long-lost host and friend, Billy Power. Welcome to the show. This is episode 80 of the program, and uh, we're getting close to finishing out 2016. Thank goodness. Uh, I don't think my heart can take any more uh, people from popular culture dying. Uh, Most recently, Sharon Jones. And uh, uh, yeah, so 2016, yuck with a side of yuck. I finally finished my uh, eight-week online English composition class. I'm happy to report that I received a final grade of A- for my first ever college class, and I'm glad that I'm now going to move on next semester to a 16-week music recording class. So that should be awesome. Uh, anyway, how are you doing out there? How's your temperature? How are you feeling? Winter, we're, winter is in full effect. Uh, like it's sub sub zero, uh, sub not sub zero, <laughs> sub freezing temperatures uh, across the country, eighty percent of the country. Uh, so now you can all look forward to everybody who's an idiot <laughs> saying so much for global warming. It's not how it works. Okay. Anyway, uh, my guest this week is Aaron Stone. Aaron is the front man, uh, founder of the band My Epic on Face Down Records. And uh, never spoke with Aaron before, um, but we had a really cool discussion, and I found a lot of his takes on institutional church and uh, wanting to live in community very refreshing and encouraging. Uh, So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Aaron Stone. Lost in the dark 
Aaron, welcome to the show. And uh, now you're somewhere between Pontiac, Michigan, and Columbus, Ohio today? Is that where you're at? Um, actually, we're right now we're still in Pontiac, but we're about to head to Chicago. We have a, we have a day off, and we played Des Moines on Tuesday. Okay. So we figured we'd have to drive, go get some amazing deep dish pizza, hang out with some friends, and, and go to some music stores. That's kind of the plan today. <laughs> nice. But thanks for having me. I'm really stoked to be here, honestly. Cool. What, uh, now do you, is that something that you do a lot going to like, uh, music stores? Are you like a collector of, uh, vinyl and actual records and that kind of thing? Or so actually, I mean like, uh, music gear, like guitars. And oh, okay. Stuff. All right. Um, I guess the front end of the process, not the back end. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I don't have a lot of vinyl. I like, I like vinyl. I own like all the records that we have made. I've got those as almost like a novelty. And then a couple of Cigarose records, but honestly, I, I'm not much of a collector of anything. Yeah. Um, if it's not useful, I don't. I don't. I guess I have Legos now. Um, <laughs> I saw. Nice. I saw the Lego movie with my nephew a few years ago, and it was so good. I'm 34, but I was still like, I told my wife, I was like, I wouldn't hate it if I got a couple of packs of Star Wars Legos. Because <laughs> um, I, because I just love like making things, like songs, obviously, and Legos are like scratch the same itch, but I don't have to to work really hard. There's yeah. instructions I'm supposed to do. So yeah. I got some of those, but now we, we, we don't tour enough to have like a off day policy. Like, I you know, gotcha. like we, yeah. we toured a ton, a ton from like 2007 to 2012. And the last few years, we've just kind of put records out and done festivals, which has been great. And then this year we kind of decided, Hey, let's, let's try to do one album and one tour a year. Yeah. Um, Cause we're really in it like for the, for the art and for, the honesty and not mm-hmm. so much for trying to make it right uh, people say all the time like oh what would you do if you made it i'm like someone pays us to make records and people pay to see us play like <laughs> that is as much make it as i ever need to make it <laughs> um, so so yeah so we we toured once this year we put in record out and toured in the spring and that was great the headliner and then um our friends in this band called florida day are breaking up and uh they asked us to go out and and they wanted to take us and Norma Jean and a band called Silent Planet. And we were like, oh, that, that's just too awesome. So yeah, we found our jobs were super gracious to let us go again. Um, and so here we are. We're on a, like, it's almost a five-week tour. And it's like almost every major city. It's been amazing. That's cool. Yeah, but we ha- we've only had two days off. The tour's been nuts for like <laughs> four and a half weeks, two days off. So we're trying to milk this one pretty good. (laughs) That's like a pretty, uh, heavy bill, like with you guys in it. I mean, not that you don't have heavy parts in your music, but like overall, it's quite a bit more aggro than the stuff that you guys do. Is that, have you been well received with those people or? Well, A, I would say, yeah, a lot better than I even expected, but also like a constant remark that we get when we play is why you guys are so much heavier and louder live. Mm -hmm. And that's always been the case. I don't quite know what we need to do to get it across on our records. Like <laughs> I play a baritone guitar and drop a, <laughs> like we put right. it, much but I guess if you have pretty parts at all and you don't play breakdowns, people just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm more grew up in a time where when I was in high school and college, it was like not a big deal to see Norma Jean on tour with me without you or mm-hmm. for this is forever. And I think that was weird. Yeah. Um, but it's actually been cool because, uh, just to be honest, Billy, our entire career, we've been the heaviest or the softest band on every show we've ever played. Uh, <laughs> One extreme or the other. Yeah. yeah, for sure. If we play, I mean, if we play a, an indie or a rock or a punk thing, we're the heavy band. Mm-hmm. Um, if we play a hardcore show, we're not. Um, but we've been just, I mean, being on FaceTime Records, it's, people always ask, like, how did that happen? I don't know. Just thankful for it. It's a great home for us. But mm-hmm. 
where we usually kind of sit as like some kind of uh, breath mint in the middle of insanity. <laughs> breath mint. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of times fans will be like, dude, you guys were so heavy. Why were you so heavy? It's like, well, because we weren't heavy the whole time. Like there's dynamic, when there's dynamics, those parts can feel so much bigger. Yeah. Um, and so we, we kind of milk that a lot. I mean, the heaviest band I've ever seen is Cigarettes for sure. Yeah. Um, and we toured with tons of hardcore bands. So it's more about the dynamic. And I kind of want to be emotionally heavy. Like I want them to feel the heaviness more than like want to like, I don't know, put up metal fingers or something. Not, nothing against what anybody <laughs> wants to do, but that's kind of, that's kind of our thing. So yeah. at, at this point we're used to it. Like we're used to, we're used to being a surprise. I mean, we've even played like, we played this like super DIY hardcore festival in Pittsburgh for a couple of years called Sincerity Fest. We have friends in a band called Advent. We played with them a few times and they're mm-hmm. like super, super heavy. And the first time we played it, I was like, dude, we are going to get chased out of here. Um, <laughs> like we're just, we don't have any breakdowns. And actually most of us don't even have tattoos. And, um, I don't smoke or drink, but I'm, I don't consider myself straight edge. And I'm not a vegan. Yeah. Um, but I guess the honesty and we just, we really get it. We really in, just feel it live. We get intense. Like I had a kid this tour say, dude, I, I <laughs> this is legit. A, a, a thing a kid said to me at March this, this tour is like, I saw you on the tour poster. I never heard your band. And I listened to you and I just couldn't even finish the song because it was so boring. But then <laughs> I saw you live and you guys were like flipping out. It was so heavy. And I just was like, Oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> So it just, it just is what it is. Like we, you know, we just enjoy being on it. And I mean, for today, I've been friends forever yeah. and super supportive. Their drummer used to be a booking agent. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then, uh, some of the newer members are guys that we knew before they joined the band. And then Santa Planet have been friends for a while. And then to be honest, Norma Jean is like one of my favorite heavy bands of all time. Yeah. So, but it's just been the best tour. Everybody, there's not a single like jerk or rock star. Everybody is cool. And everybody does their thing really well, and nobody quite steps on each other's toes. Mm-hmm. So kind of all the bands have been saying, like, this is just the best tour. We're just really enjoying it. So, yeah, it's been awesome. You can be honest, man. They're making you go, like, 10, 20 dB quieter than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, everybody's, actually, everybody's got a price match, and you got to... Uh... <laughs> well, we do have the price match, for sure. Yeah. Um, for sure. But actually... Um, uh, Ryan from Four to Eight jokes, and it's not really a joke. It's just the truth. We run our amps louder than anybody else. Yeah, nice. And and it's it's definitely short man syndrome. We're definitely trying to make up for something. You know, <laughs> like we run louder than Norma Jean. We run louder than Four to Eight for sure on our stage volume. Yeah, uh, I think we're the only band who's been asked several times, "Can we turn our stage volume down?" Nice. So you know. Loud, quiet, loud, quiet uh, can be uh, in support of what you're saying. You know, uh, dynamics can definitely go heavier uh, because there's a tendency when everything's just heavy, 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 heavy. It sort of loses a little bit of its uh, impact at some point, right? Oh, for sure, it, it definitely does. And it's and I, I never enjoyed the shows where it feels like an arms race. Um, <laughs> no a bunch of different race. bands, yeah. um, like the heaviest thing. I remember that when we went in to record our first. Not our first full length, but the first full length that we did with Matt Goldman, um, we were talking about heavy and and like what makes something heavy and and that we we want to be emotionally heavy and we want people to feel that it's heavy, but not like in any kind of ignorant like just trying to like be fake, have some kind of fake machismo or something. Yeah. Um. And and he was like, "Do you want to know what heavy is?" They're like, "Sure." And he played us this Russian composer from eighteen hundred, <laughs> and he's like. And it was just like we all sat there and just like wanted to like melt into the floor, and it was like, yeah. <laughs> That, that's heavy. Nice. Um, 
I'm not really concerned with what a 15 year old thinks heavy is. Sure. Uh, I'm not too concerned with what a, with with what a 15 a 15 year old's opinion of art is in the first place. Although I super want to be friends with them and get along well, you know. <laughs> but I'm definitely not setting their uh, their opinion at the bar. Yeah, I love that. Now you grew up in uh, North Carolina. Uh, no, I'm actually I grew up in Virginia. My okay. my dad's side is from Carolina. My mom's side is from Maryland. So I kind of grew up. GFB to DC, Maryland, Virginia. Right. Um, and but the van when we finished college, I finished grad school, um, and my brother, who's our drummer, finished undergrad, and our bassist decided he was finished with college. Yeah. Um, we all just decided to move together to Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Um, and that was kind of a journey to that point. Like we went to this like big kind of conservative Christian college and decided we couldn't drink that Kool-Aid anymore. Yeah. Um, but what that school we is that? really love. Uh, sorry, what'd you say? What school is that? Oh, you're going to make me say it. Yeah, okay. I like naming uh, names. <laughs> yeah, we went to a school called Liberty University. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and, and to be honest, there's a lot of things and a lot of people there I love, but a lot of things I don't. Yeah. So I usually try not to talk about it in the first, I don't know, 40 times I meet someone. I'd like to not be, people just assume things and I don't really want to be associated too heavily with that. I'd rather just be associated with Jesus. Um, yeah, but, sure. So we were there. We decided we couldn't drink the Kool-Aid, but we also didn't kind of want to become just the naysayers you mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah. Um, and that tends not to be a very healthy path either when you're defined by the things you don't like instead of yes. uh, by the truth you're seeking. So yep. we just started living the difference, and that kind of led us to the band started doing okay. Actually, to be honest, we went to Cornerstone in 2003 with my old band, and the plan was we were going to play a bunch of generators, Mm-hmm. And Brandon Ebel, or you or somebody was going to hear us and be like, oh my gosh. And we were going to get signed and it was all going to go down. Uh, um, and instead we ate stick burgers before we played. We all wanted to vomit on a generator <laughs> stage because it was 100 degrees. Yeah. And then we broke up. Sure. So, yeah, which is more like the normal trajectory. Yeah. So Jason um, so uh, we, Jason Bergen from uh, Strong Arm uh, threw up right after they played, when we played with them. Oh, 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 another one of my favorite heavy just bands. Just hurl, well, hurling. <laughs> well, if I had seen the guy from Strong Arm do it, I would have thought it was cool. Yeah, see? Um, because I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's so cool. But um, so we started my epic my senior year of undergrad, and then through my grad studies, I did, they offered me a scholarship for what I wanted to do, so I did a grad degree in philosophy of religion. Mm-hmm. So we just started thinking like we started, put, we put an EP out, people started paying attention. Um, and, uh, let's, let's go back further though. Uh, we'll get, we'll get to the band stuff, but oh, I'm, okay. I'm curious. Okay. I'm curious about okay. like, uh, like what you were like as like a little fellow, like tell me about like your family life and like your earliest kind of musical memory. Like what, like, I always like to go back to like, what was that first moment when you really like connected with music? Was your parents playing yeah, music yeah, or yeah. that, you know what I mean? For sure, for sure. So my dad has been a pastor my whole life, and my mom is, is like, the, like my friends call her the mom. The she's mom. Like so, she's so incredible. And my dad is like my best friend. He's like the most legit person I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't, I was a pastor's kid, but not like that kind of pastor's kid, because mm-hmm. there's really nothing to rebel about. Uh, parents are pretty awesome, but I was a little kid, and I vividly remember... Um, like when I was like eight or nine, our church got a new music minister mm-hmm. and my mom's got like an amazing soprano, uh, like Sandy Patty, if that means anything to you. Sure. Um, this exactly, my mom can just, she just, I'm going to do the Christmas service in a few weeks and she's going to sing uh, like a solo. She's going to sing all holy night and it'll just bring the roof down. 
Nice. So uh, the music minister asked, like, well, do your kids sing? And she's like, well, they sing all the time. Like kids, you know, like they're, they're always, we love to sing together. She's like, she's like, well, do they sing good? She's like, I don't know. They're kids. <laughs> so I remember very, very vividly, like going into uh, the church and sitting with our music minister and him uh, playing notes and having me sing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, I have so clear moment of him looking at me saying, you have a great voice. Um, and like, but the, a moment before that, I had no clue. How old, kid. how old are you at this point? Eight or nine. Eight, eight or nine. nine. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe seven, but he just looked at me and said, you have a great voice. You're going to be a great singer. And it was like, Oh, I have, I have a thing now. You yeah. know, like I have, I have, I, and I don't think that I ever thought to need an identity. And I certainly didn't like glom onto it. Like I was looking for one, but mm-hmm. it was like, Oh, I could sing. And they started giving me solos. And at the time I just listened to whatever my parents listened to, which was pretty much a mixture of, um, Christian contemporary stuff. Like, Stephen Curtis Chap and Michael Levy Smith, that whole that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and old R and B. My dad like played the Commodores on repeat all the time. Interesting. Um, so that's kind of what I was growing up on. I remember the first thing musically that I really, really resonated with that I still kind of resonate with, um, is Rich Mullins, like some of his uh-huh. later stuff. Just the integrity and the honesty in it. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was as a kid and then on uh on a drive to like a church camp and I was like 12 or 13, uh, my friend's like, you should check this out. And I think it was MXPX. Hmm. And it was just like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know it existed. Um, I was, I was 11 or 12 and I just was instantly like, I couldn't help it. I just looked, I remember showing my dad, my dad, why do you like this? I didn't raise you on this. I was like, I don't know, dad. It's, just, it's awesome. Um, and there was a bunch of guys in my youth group who were, four or five years older that were all rad. They all skateboarded. They all played guitar. They all hacked the stack. They were all super, super cool to this geeky little kid who sang, who like listened to Stephen Curtis Chapman. They all like taught me how to skate and I would just mimic them. I'd be like, what's that called? It's a power chord. Okay. I'm going to go do that for a while. Um, (laughs) Now where, where was this happening? uh, Virginia, Fredericksburg, Virginia, about an hour south. Fredericksburg. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then they would just give me like they they go check this out, and then they'd be like, "What's this called? Like, this is called Rage Against the Machine." And I was like, "Oh well, everything is different now. That's amazing." <laughs> um, or like the Deftones, Smashing Pumpkins. Like I was, I'm old enough that like I was right around. I was getting into like real music right around like ninety two, ninety three, ninety four. So all the end of the end of the grunge wave, I can remember like. Weezer's Blue Album coming out and Kurt Cobain dying and mm-hmm. kind of having to sneak all that music into my bedroom and hide it. That was um, like a thing. With, you had to hide it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, to be honest, my parents like were, were super rad, but I think they were just you know, their parents for the first time. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and, and they were just trying to protect me from bad influences. And I wasn't so much attracted to like the, the stuff that they didn't like. I just mm-hmm. like loved the sound. Like I loved the tone and I knew I wanted to do that. So I think the blessing that I had and that a lot of people from my generation have um, is that when I got into music, like punk rock was the thing. Mm-hmm. And if you were talented at all, you could learn punk rock in two weeks. Yeah. Um, so by the time that I had like bought my first guitar and could play five MXPX songs, I was like, Oh, well I could write one of those. <laughs> Maybe not as good, but I could do it. So sure. I started writing immediately. Um, there was no, there was no lap between learning guitar and writing. Interesting. Um, it's immediately like trying to make things up and immediately like, Oh, I've always played. What kind of guitar are we talking about at this juncture? So okay, that's 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 interesting. Like, <laughs> what the, so I played saxophone from when I was played piano from when I was like I don't know fourth grade. Uh huh. And 
made me do that. I hated it. I wish now that I had it. Um, and then I played saxophone because I took band class and it was the only thing that seemed cool to me. Yeah. Um, but I was always, I remember being like 11 and thinking, like, I wish I had learned guitar, but too late now, I'm 11. <laughs> uh, I've already did both. And then I found my, I don't know why they didn't tell me. My mom, I guess I'd never mentioned it. My mom had an old classical guitar that she used to play. Huh. And I found it. And so, like, the first, I don't know, 10 MXTX Deftones. I remember the first riff that I remember, like, Deftones, Smashing Pumpkins, Rage Against Machine was, like, on a classical guitar. Yeah. Uh, but just, like, be in my bedroom, just, like, with it dropped down to my knees going ham. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I started a band when that's the only guitar I had. Uh, but I knew a guy, I don't even remember his name anymore, it was 20 years ago, but I knew a guy who was selling like a PV Predator, like kind of, oh wow, yeah. kind of like a mashup between like an Ibanez metal guitar and a Stratocaster. Yeah. It was purple, no way I wanted to buy it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I would tell him I wanted to buy it and I would borrow it and I would play a show. I played shows without owning a guitar. Uh, I had an old like karaoke machine, and I learned if I plugged the guitar into it and turned it all the way up, it sounded distorted. Oh my god! So, legitimately, the first two we played like they had like a little talent show thing, and the first ones I played, both were both MX, one was an MXDX cover, one was a Cooties cover, and I was playing them on a borrowed PG Predator that the guy thought I was gonna buy, which I definitely wasn't. They were <laughs> karaoke. So humble beginnings. Just so everyone's clear, there was no interest in purchasing the purple PV Predator. Yeah, just you should just know that I will never play a purple guitar. <laughs> Let the record show: no triple P in this guy. No, sir. But I, then I was at a battle of the bands, like around. I mean, everything was happening within a few months. It all happened so fast. But my freshman year with this kid Nathan, who was rad, he was older. Mm-hmm. He had a stick, uh, like BC Rich Warlock or something. Oh gosh, I thought that I thought was like way too, I was like, my parents will never let me have that because it looks like the devil. Um, <laughs> An but, instrument of the devil, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes my sound, my parents sound way bad. They, they wouldn't they would have said that, but <laughs> we were at a battle of the bands, and there was the coolest band in my area called Poser Bill. Um, called what? And called Poser Bill. Bill or Phil? No, Phil, your name. Poser, Poser Bill. Poser Bill, nice. Yeah, I think they hated you. I'm not sure why. They were on, they were on to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess they anyway, but they like they were kind of like a, a super aggro, like grungy punk thing. Mm-hmm. And I just remember they had they had won the battle of the bands before, so they weren't allowed to win this one. Okay. And uh but they got to play a longer set, that was the deal. If you won the next one you got to play there was like a, a, a circuit of these things around the high schools. Mm-hmm. And so they were playing and right about the time that the little eleventh grade, you know, uh SEA girl huddle kind of said uh one more minute. Uh, they all changed their guitars and played three more songs. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Nice. They turned their back corner, and for the last song, the guitarist changed his guitar. He was playing a strat, and he picked up his guitar with like horns on it. And I was like, I remember being like, what is that thing? And I leaned over to my friend Nathan. I was like, Nathan, what is that guitar? He's like, oh, that's, that's called a Gibson SG. And I was like, I have to have that. that nice. That is the guitar. Yeah. So, I cut grass for two summers um, and, and dreaming of an SG and bought a Gibson SG Standard American when I was like 15. How old? 15? So, 16. 16. Yeah, I paid like a thousand bucks. It was by far the most expensive thing I'd ever bought. But yeah. I was that serious about it. I didn't want a beginner guitar. I yeah. kept telling the people at the store, don't sell me a beginner guitar. I'm not interested. Wow. So my parents said, you've, you've got $800. 
if you want, you can keep saving for the guitar you want, or we'll double your money and buy you a car. What? And I think they thought that was like, they thought that was like really, because I just got my license. Yeah. I was like, why would I need a guitar? My best friend, Maddie has a car. Like he'll drive me everywhere. I'm buying the guitar. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think that, like, what do you attribute that to? I mean, like, being that driven or that focused? Just, bit like, that's just not normal for someone that age to be like, I don't want a beginner guitar. Because I run, I run, like, a school of rock, so I want to consider myself a semi-expert on kids that age and what they're thinking, what they say, and how they look at things. Yeah. And they, I mean, the guitars they roll in there with, like, they don't care, they don't know. It takes them some time to evolve into, like... Oh yeah, I now I saw this other thing and I want to get that. You know what I mean? That's like not normal to like have that kind of thought. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was I think it was just like the first thing. I'd been I'd been decent at a lot of things. Like I was a decent athlete, but I wasn't great. Uh, but I was always good enough to like maybe maybe make the All-Star team be the worst player on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first thing that I did. As soon as I started singing, it was that thing where everybody starts telling you, "Oh yeah, you're good at that. You're good at that." So you want to do it more. And as soon as I started playing guitar, I was blown by people who were playing for months. Yeah. And it was just very affirming. And it was like, it, I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to run after it. Like, I wanted more of that. And I it definitely felt, even at that age, like, okay, I found something that's going to be a part of who I am for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. This is this is going to be a part of my identity. And again, like, not to be overly spiritual, but like, I do believe that we're given gifts, lots of gifts. And some of them are spiritual and some of them aren't. But mm-hmm. like, one of the gifts I have is like, is I understand music in a way that some people don't. And mm-hmm. Not better than everybody, certainly not better than a lot of people, but good enough that it means something to somebody. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to, my parents like put that idea of like stewardship in my brain really young. Like mm-hmm. anything you have or can do or own, like you're responsible for and you need to do it well. Um, and so I just kind of resonated with like, all right, if I can play music, then I need to like pursue it. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, I guess I registered like that. I wanted to buy like a guitar that would last me like a long time. And I, I was intelligent enough to realize that some guys would buy a guitar they play for 10 years. So I was like, okay, well I want to buy one of those, but <laughs> my parents were, were pretty supportive. Yeah. Um, my dad definitely didn't understand like, cause when my dad got became a believer, he, he was like, he was selling drugs. He was a crazy, like living a crazy life. And, like when my dad was 14, he hitchhiked from Maryland to New York to see, um, a massive like hippie rock and roll festival. Uh-huh. Um, Nice. And when he was 14, uh, so when <laughs> yeah. he became a believer, like he put all that stuff behind him. Mm-hmm. And so he, he never, he had never found a place for that stuff again. So him, it was like associated with, with the rebellion he lived in. And right. it took a while to convince him that I, I don't, I, I love God. Like I really do. And I don't see any problem with like doing that very loudly mm-hmm. and as sweaty as possible. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe as fast as we can possibly get our drummer to do it. Um, yeah, they were supportive enough too that that I think they were like, well, you know, if you buy a hundred dollar guitar, you're just gonna buy another one in a year. So yeah, do you still have that guitar? <laughs> the Gibson SG standard that I bought. Unfortunately, yeah. our practice space got robbed in Charlotte, North Carolina, Ugh. um, in two thousand and nine. Jeez, and they they got that guitar. Uh, so it's a bummer because I would definitely still use it at times if I had it. Yeah, um, we we recouped some of the stuff, but we didn't recoup all of it. Yeah, and uh, if I ever see it, I'll know it because I, my dumb seventeen-year-old self, bought like this stupid-looking mirror red pickguard to, to replace. So it's like a black SG with this dumb-looking bright red mirror pickguard. <laughs> Mirrored pickguard. Wow. If anybody's seen a bright red mirror pickguard on a black SG from like two thousand uh, ninety-nine, like it's mine, and I want it back. That would stand out. 
for sure. I don't know if I don't know if I've ever seen a mirrored pit guard to be honest. Maybe like in pictures. Yeah, you you don't need to. It looks dumb. <laughs> That's crazy. So like tell then uh like you it's cool you had these people that were kind of like not mentoring necessarily but they were like some older kids like you were describing showing you how to skateboard and that kind of stuff. Did this same crew of people like start taking you to shows were, were shows like a thing? Like yeah. tell me like about your first live like experiencing other bands playing and that kind of thing. So like my first 20 shows were all like local punk rock shows and they weren't church shows, they weren't Christian shows. They were just like there was a scene in our town and, uh-huh. you know, VFW halls, that kind of thing yeah. where one older kid had like a sound system. Mm-hmm. And so they, they'd rent the hall and it'd be like five bucks and it would just pack, you know, like 150 kids wall to wall. And it was back to when like nobody knew what to do. Like it was pretty much just push moshing and skanking and uh-huh. just being awkward and sweaty. No one had a pedal board. No one, certainly no one had backdrops or any kind of lighting or anything. Like, yeah, I, I remember the first time I saw a kid with a tuning pedal and I was like, what is that? You know, like <laughs> it was just, it was so raw and so DIY. Yeah. Um, that's probably okay. <laughs> no, it was, it definitely was. We don't, we don't need the ego boxes and the backdrops and all that stuff. It's fine. Yeah, no, for sure. And that, that aesthetic still informs us today. Like mm-hmm. for sure that like good things are hard things. You got to work for it and no one owes you anything and all that stuff for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think my first four shows were, like, seeing that band Poser Bill a bunch. It was a band called uh, Quarter Short. Um, I didn't like them as much because they were really silly. And I didn't like the silly thing as much. Uh-huh. I like silliness, but not in my punk rock. Yeah. Um, that's, that, was, that was scoffing. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and then, I, and then I saw a band one time, and I was, like, they were setting up, and I was, what do you guys sound like? Just being, like, a kid yelling from the crowd. They're, like, we're emo. <laughs> and I was, like, what's that? And they said, uh, oh, they explained it to me and I was like, that just sounds like slow punk rock. And they were like, no, it's called emo. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> so those are most of my, like, I don't even remember the first proper show I went to. Like, right. I mean, the cool thing was that, that you guys did tooth and nail, like at a, when you were there anyway, like you had such a large roster and I just got my mom to know that anything with that label was okay. Yeah. Um, and, and then anything with solid tape was okay, which that was really cool. Then we could listen to crazy stuff. Um, she was like, what's this called? It's called training for utopia. <laughs> this even music? Yeah, mom, it's okay. Just we're, we're doing fine. But yeah, no. So I, I, I don't. I'm trying to even remember. Like, I mean, we just went to a lot of those kind of shows. I mean, college is really when it opened up. Because mm-hmm. then I could do anything somewhere. We saw all kinds of bands, and our because our college was so big, all of those bands came. Yeah, uh, they didn't always on campus, but they played around, yeah. and that really helped me. That because we by the time we left high school, we were like the best band in our area. Um, which band was that? And by far the oh man, I really don't want people to look this up. The <laughs> we were called right, the Right Wing Conspiracy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Where'd that come and, from? And we, uh, well, our parents, my my parents, my buddy's parents were super political. Uh huh. And he was like, it was at the time when like everybody was trying to impeach Bill Clinton and stuff. Okay. And uh, he and everybody was talking about a vast right wing conspiracy in the media. Yep. And um. He's like, everybody's trying to figure out who the vast random conspiracy is. You guys should just be them. So it's kind of a joke. <laughs> yeah. But we, we didn't stick with it long because we were never political. Right. Um, so we changed our name when we got to college to just Shaddai. Mm-hmm. Obviously in honor of Amy Grant. Um, yeah, sure. No, but everybody <laughs> thinks it's that song when we say it. Because so, <laughs> um, she came up with that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she created that word herself and uh-huh. then put it in the Bible. Yep. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, 
But um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, then we started going lots of shows, and then it was kind of like li- little big fish, little pond, little fish, big pond. That really, like going to going to Cornerstone and getting a parrot, like going to college and having to start all over again was like that was all super helpful mm-hmm. uh, to get perspective on like, okay, how good are we really, and how much harder do we? Need? And I would just double down. Okay, I'm just gonna work harder and mm-hmm. write better songs. I'm just going to keep working. So, yeah, and the college team was awesome. We had a friend named Jan, who now owns a label called Burning Bush. Not uh-huh. Burning Bush. What's his label called? I just, <laughs> it's uh, Blood Nick. Sorry, Blood Nick. Blood Nick. Um, yeah. Blood Nick Records. Sure. Yeah. Well, he used, to, he used to do a promotions company called Burning Bush, but he would bring all these cool bands in. It's like Norma Jean and Beloved and See Without You and all this rat stuff. So, Copeland. So, that really helped us, like, improve a ton, like, going to shows. And he put us on those bills, and it would just, kind of highlight how much we needed to work. Mm-hmm. Now, hold on a second. Now you said you're kind of telling me this whole story about how, when you were younger, you got, you saved up to get this guitar. You kind of knew uh, in a sort of like a calling type way that this is what you wanted to do. What, what happened with you then deciding uh, to go into philosophy and religion for college and not music or something related to that? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, no, it was, First of all, I wouldn't say it was calling so much. Like I don't, I don't really think in those terms. Like I, I mm-hmm. definitely feel. Um, I think we have pretty broad callings as Christians, and I think we've given us a ton of freedom to use the gifts we have to serve how we want to serve. Yep. Um, for the kingdom. So, but that being said, like I was almost going to major in music, and then right before I was about to, like my senior year of high school, it just dawned on me, like I don't need to pay anyone to make me get better. Like I am so driven on this thing, mm-hmm. um, and and not because I don't need people, not because I was better. Than Nothing to do with that. Right. It wasn't a bribe thing. It was just like, if I'm going to pay someone like 60, 80 grand, I don't, I don't need help being driven on this end. Yeah. Um, I, I can find books. And I mean, at the time, the internet wasn't as useful as it is now, but I knew, I mean, it was a little bit helpful. I can find people. I can learn. But I knew that there was other things I wanted to do in life or other things that would marry well with it um, that I did. I needed more accountability. You know, I needed to be focused. Mm-hmm. So, I just decided, well, I, regardless of what I do, whether it's like full-time job ministry or whether it's a music thing and whether it's like, uh, quote unquote, the secular world, which I, I would like to reject that whole thought process, but. Oh, thank goodness. Of conversation. Um, <laughs> it's true. Or, uh, you know, there's the whole world as we know it. And that's all there is. <laughs> yeah, that, that is all there is. And if, if, yeah, I, I got interviewed for it. The actual world that we all live in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we're supposed to live in. Yes. That we're supposed to be in. Um, and if, if Christians would stop trying to create a false version of everything, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd certainly be walking more in obedience. But um, so uh, I just thought, well, regardless of what I want to do, I could really stand to learn a lot more about the uh, Bible, theology, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say, mm-hmm. what it is and what it isn't. And then with, with grad school, my reasoning at the time was uh, it's being offered for free. And I think that would probably be wise. But to be honest, I think the main reason I, I couldn't have been this honest with myself at the time. But now I look back, and the main reason I did grad school was it, it allowed me to stay with my pants. Yeah. Uh, they were still in they were still in undergrad. I gotcha. um, but yeah, it was pretty much just saying I'm not going to pay someone eighty grand to make me do music. I I already loved it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in high school, I would play play hockey and I did theater and soccer, and I would still come home and play guitar for to my mom told me to go to bed. Yeah. You know, my, my dad, and I'm not like a virtuoso on guitar at all. Like I just love playing. My dad 
has forever and still calls the guitar uh, the pacifier. Because <laughs> if I have a guitar, I'm I'm a happy baby. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. You don't need to be a uh, virtuoso. It's okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I, yeah. I actually think I actually like. I, I don't want to learn too much theory. I've been like careful to not learn too much theory because I have friends that know a ton of theory, and it seems like the magic's gone sometimes. Yeah. Um, I, I like agree. picking up a guitar and not always knowing what's going to come out of it. And I, I don't. I don't even. I would never say I'm a guitarist. I play guitar for sure, but I think of it more as a means to get out ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the means that I'm most comfortable with. So I'm just hearing things in my head while I'm playing guitar and trying to hear something interesting. Yeah. So so, so the right-wing conspiracy becomes Shaddai. Then what happens? Shaddai goes to Cornerstone to get signed, uh-huh. eats thick burgers before we play, and plays in a 100-degree temperature with no sunlight. <laughs> but we, with no shade, I mean. And we break up. And uh, What year is this? 2003. Okay. So my favorite band at the time was Beloved. Mm-hmm. And we got a, uh, a tent right outside of where they were playing. So we would be playing right when they were finishing. So mm-hmm. we're like, oh, this is perfect. Yep. Um, and which was actually the opposite of our We played, it was awful. And then one of my best friends, Jono, who I've been friends with since I was three, who was a bass player, just pulled me aside and was like, dude, I'm never going to be a professional musician. Um, you need to move on. Like, <laughs> you need to find. Yeah. Other real musicians like you that write their own. You and I was like, you know, I fought it because I love him. It's one of my best pieces. But no, man, you're good. You're good. He's like, no, you write on my parts. You tell me what to play. You just string my bass for me. I don't have a clue what's going on. Mm-hmm. You need to find other people like you if you're going to really do this, um, which is super self-sacrificial of him. Um, and I know, I know it was hard for a while because he loved it, but he wasn't. But it wasn't a thing. So, um, so we broke up. And my brother, who was our drummer, who was a great, who is a great musician, me and another friend. I to start a new band and I only knew one guy that I wanted to try out for bass um, who was a guy known for a year at college named Jeremiah and I told the guy I, like, I have no clue if he's any good but I know I love hanging out with him and he, he's a great dude mm-hmm. so we tried him out and um, he couldn't learn the only riff that I showed him and I was like this is the guy um, for some reason <laughs> and uh, sure and we started writing songs, and I would always say, like, I just want it to be more epic. Like, I just want it to be, like, at the time, it wasn't a buzzword in internet culture. It's like, right. I wasn't everywhere. This is, like, 2004. Yeah. And so, and then all of a sudden, our friend Dan, who I mentioned before, put us on a really good show on campus. And it was like, oh, we have to finish these songs and come up with a band name. And so we all came up with band names, and we voted, and I lost, and that's how it became my <laughs> You lost. Yeah. Like, Do you I'm, remember you remember some of the other uh, choices? Well, yeah, yeah. So, so someone else suggested they suggested my epic uh, because we want our lives to be in a story that God is writing. We want it. We want to be on that side of history. Um, uh-huh. And then someone else suggested the epic because I kept saying that word, and then I wanted to be called uh, the common curse, um, which common is curse. just the worst. They're all just the worst. Uh, they're all the worst. <laughs> In the end, we voted, but we all lost. Um, yeah. Because, uh, like, a year later, everything became, like, my epic something video online, or that's epic. And it was like, oh, crap. Oh, boy. But anyway, so, yeah, so we picked that name, and we played our first show opening for a band called Forever Change. Uh-huh. It was really cool, really sweet to us, and pulled us aside and was like, hey, you guys are better than every opening band we played with on this tour, which mm. now, in retrospect, I realize doesn't mean much. Um, sure. <laughs> having had a lot of local bands, um, context, context, yes, yeah. But it was all I needed to keep going, and uh, so 
we started playing on campus and doing really well. Um, mm-hmm. This and, is at Liberty? Yeah, yeah. Got to the point where we could like headline our own show and there'd be like four or 500 kids. So that was awesome. And then we, we did a demo with a friend uh, over like spring break. And um, we decided like, let's do an EP and let's try to do a tour. So we booked our own, put on an EP, self-released in 2006. And we were still in college. We were in grad school. And, um, and then we, uh, we booked our own two-week tour, like from Virginia down to Florida and back. Uh, all through MySpace. Wow. It puts it in context. Um, yeah, nice. So we booked it all in MySpace. And somehow on our first tour, we went to Florida and back. All the shows were good. We made $2,700. And that was kind of the deal breaker. I was like, okay, I'm really hooked now. Um, yeah. So we just that's when we started to say, hey, we should finish college and really give this thing uh, a running, a running shot. Like, let's just really give it a shot. So far of all your decision-making, that was perhaps the best finish <laughs> college. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was kind of more like my parents were like, uh, uh, like they, they were, they, they never said this, but I just knew if I go get a college degree, they will have, they won't, mm-hmm. they won't stop me. They won't even complain about anything I want to do. Right. Um, sure. I'm in college now and I'm 48. So <laughs> I, I, I needed to make the decision you made and I did not. And here I am. <laughs> when we get off this call today, I'm going to take an English final and I'm approaching 50. So let's, <laughs> all the kids, anybody out there listening, who's at that juncture that you were at the, uh, you know, that I was once at, uh, just finish it and don't worry about it. Just do it. Yeah. But man, you were in Blunderhead. So, you know, who cares? <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> I care, but, but nobody, I, nobody wants to hire me, uh, based on that. <laughs> But I'm, I mean, I'm 34 and I'm tour, I'm on tour with mostly like 25 year olds. So yeah, uh, luckily sure. I, I look a little young cause I haven't had kids yet. So, yeah. but, uh, yeah. So we just, I, I just was like, there's no reason not to honor that. And to be honest, we just weren't good enough. I've got tons of friends who got signed and went pro at like 20 or 21. I was not yeah. good enough yet. Um, sure. I was, I was a slow developer for sure. Well, it takes time to find your voice too. And what, you know, definitely, I don't know. Definitely. Musically, things evolve usually and all that kind of stuff. For sure. I don't think I don't think I figured out quite what we wanted to do until we were like 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of when it really started to kind of work out for us. Yeah. So you kind of stayed in school. Yeah. Finished the thing. Yeah. And then uh, then you just went about touring and all that stuff then after this Florida thing. It was a super calculated decision. Um, yeah. So we, we just like, hey, we're all going to graduate in May. Let's move to a major city and and try to tour full time and see if we can get signed. Mm-hmm. Um, we had had a, we had had a little bit of just like the teeniest bit of interest from floodgate mm-hmm. at the time, which was a label that bands we were friends with were on. And so, sure. um, and I had helped, uh, so we, were, we were like looking at, we we're like, let's just move to a major city and try. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that, that's where it kind of began to develop more where I'd had a lot of friends who had already graduated undergrad and gone on and they were miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to figure out why. And it just occurred to me, Literally one day I went to visit my brother. We were both working different places in um, different sides of the state of Carolina for the summer. And I went to visit him when I was going back. I was just realizing like all my friends are miserable because they're used to living with like 30 people on a college dorm, hanging out, serving together, living together. And now they're living alone. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. and it just occurred to me, oh, I'm going to be an adult and I can do what I want to do. So I don't have to look the way anybody tells me. Yep. Um, I'm not going to do the stupidest thing, but I can figure it out on my own. So I was literally like, I'm, I'm, you place, go ahead. I was just going to say you place a lot of value like then on community and the idea of people being together. And for sure. Kind of stuff. For sure. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not doing it. We're, we're going to go together. A bunch of us are going to go somewhere together. 
and um, mm-hmm. the band will go together and whoever else wants to go. And I remember telling a friend, like, yeah, we're, we're just going to move to a major city and all live together and share our money and share what we have. And he was like, oh, that's, that's called living. You're going to live communally. And I was like, no, we're not mm-hmm. communist. Um, <laughs> and he was like, sure. I was like, we're just going to share everything. And he was like, yeah, that's called living communally. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I, I, we didn't think what we were thinking of was like a novel idea. We just didn't, we right. didn't know anybody who'd done it. Um, and so, yeah. so we're like, okay, well, let's move to a major city and we'll all live together. And then it was like, well, why don't we move to like a really hard, tough neighborhood um, and just take Jesus for real? Like, let's just take him at his word. Like, let's just go without a plan other than like to love people and to serve people mm-hmm. and to be kind and gracious and giving and in a place where people are hurting and just see what God does with it. Um, it really wasn't much more of a plan than that. And so we decided on mm-hmm. Charlotte because I had helped plan a church there in my summer breaks. And Charlotte's a pretty decent sized city and it's in the Southeast, which is where we were doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So in May of 2007, we moved in a uh, long story short, we met a couple people in ministry and they were like, y'all should move to this neighborhood called Optimus park because it's one of the most downtrodden neighborhoods in the city. And what's it called? Optimist park. I know it's ironic. Optimist park. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we moved into Optimus Park, and at the time, we were the, like, besides one other lady that was married to our friend, we were the only Caucasian people in the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> it was a very broken neighborhood. Like, I, I can only think of one family that was together. I can only think of two students, two, two kids I knew who had one of their parents. Most kids were living with a grandma mm-hmm. or an aunt or uncle, and I can only think of a handful of girls who got out of high school without getting pregnant. Um, it, was, wow. it was a very... I mean, I, it definitely was home, and it wasn't like, uh, I mean, to, 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 to give you an analogy, we shot a video before we left for a tour just out in our front yard going, hey, we're leaving for tour. We hope you all come out and see us on this tour. We're getting ready to go to studio, one of those kind of deals. And my mom calls me and was like, did I hear gunshots in the background? <laughs> um, and I went back and listened, and for sure, it was gunshots. Um, yeah. I just didn't even recognize it because we were so used to it at that point. But um, yeah. so we moved in, and we we rented the only house that we could like that would let us rent because we were all like 22 year old college kids with no credit. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, we moved in and, um, we built, we had one bedroom that was 10 by 10. So we built three triple stack bunk beds. Um, so nobody could fully sit up in their beds and the beds were literally a foot apart. So you could touch everybody if you wanted to from your bed. Um, it was, <laughs> and we just prayed like, God, we don't, we have no idea what we're doing, but we will be your dude. Um, we will be here mm-hmm. and we will just, we'll, we'll just let you. And within six months, the house was full. Um, we began to, we had an in with the homeless community and we realized we pretty quickly, we couldn't be a good homeless shelter, but we kind of looked for people who wanted a hand up and not a handout. And yeah, it was a crazy five years, man. We took people in. How did you, how did you learn that that was a mistake? You had some problems. Um, there was just, we kind of, we were super naive and the one piece of wisdom we had gotten was go there and figure out what it needs, not what you think it needs, not what you think it can bring. Right. Don't go be the white savior. Mm-hmm. That's super arrogant. Yeah. So we got there and realized, oh, there's awesome homeless services. There's awesome food services, clothing services. So we, we don't need mm-hmm. to be those things and we're not very trained. So let's look for people who are like, maybe have a chance to get off. Like that really, some people are habitual. Most people are habitually homeless for a reason. Um, but there's right. always those people on the border of any culture that could move out. So. Um, we became friends with a guy through our church. Basically there was this guy going to the church that we had helped plant and it was a pretty like white yuppie uptown church, mostly like 
Charlotte's mm-hmm. a big banking city. And this guy was ex-homeless and was rough. And so when we moved in, the pastor was like, Neil, I know you don't feel like you belong here. You should hang out with these guys because they play in a rock band and eat out of dumpsters. Um, and so, <laughs> um, and, and so that's kind of how we got an end to the community. And then in the neighborhood, we invited one guy in the neighborhood over for a cookout and he just started telling me, Hey, I invited this other guy too. Is that cool? Sure. And by the time we had the cookout two days later, he had invited 10 people. Um, wow. and it was like, Oh, we should just do this every Monday. So every Monday we uh-huh. just had a free cookout in our backyard and we learned pretty quickly that you couldn't say cookout tomorrow, cookout an hour. We had to, we called it the parade. We literally walked around the neighborhood and say, the cookout is right now. And people would just follow us back. <laughs> We'd have like 80, 90 people in the backyard of our little teeny like 600 square foot house. Wow. And we, we were, we felt really convicted about funding it all. Like again, the whole DIY punk rock thing, like we didn't raise support and people would ask, people would come to visit. Like, Oh, how do you support all this ministry? We work, all of us mm-hmm. work because the kids in yeah. our neighborhood needed to see grown men who got up and went to work every day and who didn't expect anything to be given to them. So I love that. we'd come off tour and I'd go right back to work as a bike messenger or as a coppersmith or whatever the heck job I could get. Even a coppersmith. Yeah, I did that for a while. What does that entail? Um, I'm sorry, but I've never spoken to anybody in my entire life that <laughs> said coppersmithing. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, if you've ever seen a really expensive house with like a, a metal roof that's turned green, that's copper. Um, and yes. it's like the, it's arguably the most long lasting way to roof your house. Like if you copper uh-huh. your roof, you're probably never going to need to replace it or fix it unless a tree falls. Um, and mm-hmm. it's super expensive. And so Charlotte is a big money city. And so every rich person wants a copper roof. So this, uh-huh. it's even, it's even so-and-so has one. And so they got to have yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the Joneses. Um, so, <laughs> so it's even crazier than it sounds in our neighborhood. Not only was it a broken, like, inner-city neighborhood, but there was an old warehouse that had been converted into, like, a guy that we knew kind of into an incubator for small businesses and artistic people. And so there was always, like, really weird little people doing weird... I mean, it was always changing. Um, but there was a guy there named Larry who, off the books, did copper, copper whatever. He could go into your house and build, like, a crazy mantelpiece for you or a hood over... I mean, it was like he was the best copper smith in town. He could do... I mean, his claim to fame was he could do French curves out of copper. I don't even know. I did it for two years, and I never quite learned what that meant. But it was impressive, for sure. (laughs) Um, But it was even cooler than that, because Larry um, was in his mid-60s, maybe late-60s, and he was um, a hippie who got saved in the Jesus movement and never took it back. Um, He got saved in a bus going the wrong way during uh, Woodstock, and just fell in head over heels in love with Jesus, but never, mm-hmm. never got pulled into the church culture or the, the, the institutionalized church culture. Let me put it that way. So yeah, uh-huh. that's kind of who mentored me for two years. And lucky Larry, yeah, no, lucky <laughs> me. He's awesome. Um, yeah. He was definitely not a normal person at all. Yeah. Hard to understand at times, but I've never met anybody who had such a genuine and uninstitutionalized love for the scriptures. We would just like yeah. listen to the Bible, like other works, other job sites, you like listen to classic rock or country. We listen to the Bible on tape every day, all day while we put roofs on house. Huh. And he would, he would literally sing along with parts that he liked. Like if it hit a verse that he really jammed on, he would start going along <laughs> yeah. like it was his favorite lyric. It was so awesome. Wow. So yeah, we did that kind of stuff. And the, um, the house grew and we had to get a bigger house. And then there was a girl house. Um, and, uh, and then, a bunch of the guys and the girls got married. So we had 
a bunch of married houses. Uh, really? Yeah. It was like a bunch of different people, you know, living communally with each other. And for the most part, all in Optimus Park, this whole thing. Yeah, and then, the, neighborhood. yeah and there's two other neighborhoods like right next door uh, in those neighborhoods too. And just again, like we, we eventually had to name it because we almost got like a million dollar grant for what we were doing, which is another crazy story. Huh. Um, but really, we had no name. We had no T-shirts. We had no anything. We just did it. It was just that was really important to us was like because we we're in our mid 20s now. and We'd meet kids on tour and they want to come live there. And we would just be like, hey, this is not a thing. We're just living together doing the gospel. Like, you're not going to get a job environment. You're not going to get a T-shirt like you have to get up and figure out. And we'll help you. We're gonna we're gonna disciple you for sure. But what are you good at? Right. What can you bring? Everything doesn't. I mean, I I really don't resonate with the institutionalized church, and for the most part, don't really want any part in it. Um, I, most of the church that I've fallen in love with is the organic expression. So it was really big on just mm-hmm. on that. And I mean, yeah, it was crazy. Like we shot cracking our sugar ball one time. Um, I had I played laser <laughs> sure. tag with a drug dealer. Uh, who then later offered to kill a guy for me. Oh, yeah. Like, to honor him. Why was that? Because oh. that guy did something? Yes, there was you? another guy that lived with us for two years, and while we were on tour one time, he relapsed into cocaine addiction. And the guys that we had left mm. in charge were a little bit younger and didn't catch the signs, and he was smart enough mm. to steal stuff from the guys that were on tour so that we weren't there to notice it. So right. we came home, he went to jail for a year, we visited him every week, he got clean, and... When he came out, he had nowhere to go. And so we were like, Chris, um, we totally love you, and we don't trust you at all. Those things are not connected. <laughs> I don't think you yeah. have to be connected at all. all right. So sure. you can come live back in the house under a bunch of rules. Like you got to be at home by 10 every night. If you're unemployed for longer than two weeks, you're out. If you miss one payment, you're out. If anything goes missing, you're out. Um, and if then you've got to go do drug, you got to do drug testing while you're out. So, which he was like, man, I'm a grown man. Well, then you can go live somewhere else. Uh, but if you want to live here, <laughs> this is how it's going to be. And when you act like a grown man, we'll treat you like one. Um, wow. So he was back in the house for two months. Actually, one of our other friends, who was a ho- ex homeless guy, Dave, like Chris was kind of, it was like I think it was like the third or fourth night he was back, was like bucking against the rules. And I was like, dude, this is just how it's going to be. And if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And don't act like it because we are doing these things. We don't love you. Like you can say that if you want, but no one's buying. And mm-hmm. we heard him later outside with another homeless guy. And this other guy said, Chris, if you can't, uh, there ain't three fair people in the world than Aaron, Jesse and Jeremiah. If you can't make it here, you got nowhere left to go. Um, which is just like super, super cool. But, um, so then we were, we were pressing our own t-shirts before we left for tour. We used to make our own shirts to save money. Um, we would, mm-hmm. the screen prints made and do them ourselves. So we we're pressing our shirts. We all went out to dinner and came back and we felt like going on. It looks like some of the shirts are missing. And lo and behold, there's like 30 half-pressed My Epic shirts missing. Like who in the world would sell, steal, especially in the ghetto, would steal three half-pressed My Epic shirts? So <laughs> yeah. we pull him aside. We're like, dude, you stole a bunch of shirts. He's like, I swear. I swear on my child's life. I, I, don't, <sighs> I don't believe you. I wish I did, but I don't. He's like, you're, you're out of the house. And he's like, oh, that's fair. You guys have always been fair to me, but I promise you I didn't do it. I was like, and, and God knows. And I was like, well, if God knows, God knows. And he's going to get your back. But I'm really sure that nobody else did it. Um, so a couple of weeks went by and we were out doing our parade. Some people cook out tonight. And we see our friend who used to be a drug dealer. Um, and who, who, when I say that, it's not like he'd gotten his life together. It wasn't like a Hallmark story. But he wasn't selling drugs anymore. Sure. 
Um, and actually, mm-hmm. when I first met this guy, he told me, I asked him what his name was, and he said I should call him God. Uh, I was like, wow. I'm not calling you that. Um, <laughs> another yeah. crazy story. But we see him, and he's wearing a Myepic shirt. We're like, free, where did you get that half-pressed Myepic shirt? He's like, oh, your roommate Chris was trying to sell them for you. Like, well, first of all, he hasn't lived at our house in two weeks. Second of all, he stole those shirts. He's like, well, yeah, he had them in a suitcase, and he was trying to sell them for y'all. But nobody wanted them, so he started giving them out. Like, yeah, why would anybody want? First of all, no one in our neighborhood knew what our band sounded like. We knew that was never going to be a thing. So my brother, when he heard the word suitcase, he just turned around and ran home and and realized that he had had a suitcase stolen and didn't know it. Um, And (laughs) so then, like, the next day we're leaving for tour, and Bree calls me, and he says, hey, man, uh, I just want you to know uh, that basically the gist of it was that he was offended by what Chris did because we are so good to the neighborhood and we try so hard to be good to the neighborhood and he respects that. So he said, so I just want you to know, I respect you and Chris is not going to be a problem for you anymore. Oh geez. And it didn't register at first. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks man. Um, and then like he moved away. Yeah, yeah, or... <laughs> he goes, yeah, Chris. And then he said it again, like Chris is not going to be a problem for you anymore. And it clicked. And I was like, Bree, don't kill Chris. And there was a long pause, and he just goes, if that's what you want. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I want you to not kill Chris. And he goes, okay, have a good day, man. And he hung up. Uh, oh, my goodness. So. Sure. It was a crazy five years, and for the most part, we had no clue what we were doing. It was awesome because it's where we learned that, man, if you just go and you walk in faith, that God will be with you, and he doesn't need you to be clever in the first place. He just needs you to be faithful. Yeah. So. I love that. Most of our heavy touring years, that's what we were doing. We were living there and doing that. So that was like from age 22 to like 27, um, something like that? Yeah, uh, actually it was age, no, oh man, I did grad school first. It was like age 24 to age 29. Okay. Yeah. What What brought that to an end? Um, We've been there for five years and I had a friend who was uh, in ministry in New England and alone. And, um, mm-hmm. and he said, dude, there's a billion Christians in Charlotte. There's nobody in New England. Uh, help a brother out. And... <laughs> And then the second motivating factor was I was dating a girl who lived in New England. Uh-huh. So it was like, well, I could go and help my buddy Albie, and I could see how serious this relationship is. And mm-hmm. I took the other guy who was leading the guy's house. At the time, both my brother and my other, Jesse and Jeremiah, the other original MyPic members, had gotten married. They lived separately in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I took the other guy to lunch who was leading the guy's house with me, and we both realized we were taking each other to lunch to tell each other we were leaving. Um, wow. He was going to go finish his doctorate, and I was going to go uh, to New England, and we we're like, well, I guess God has a plan. And two of the younger guys stepped up, and we're like, we'll take over. So they took over the house and eventually merged it with another house that had developed after ours. I moved to England mm-hmm. and took a job digging trenches, mm-hmm. and they said I could tour whenever I wanted. And so we put out an, the acoustic EP, and which was like a lark, but was awesome because it mm-hmm. broke us even as a band, and we started to get more traction. And I lived in New England only for six months. I took a job right before I left. I was going to be the music and worship guy at this camp uh-huh. and run a discipleship program for like 20-somethings, um, along uh-huh. with like a pastor in his 50s and a retired pastor in his 70s. It was on this beautiful camp, like overlooking this natural lake in New Hampshire. So I was going to work at this camp. I was, it was going to be awesome. I was going to finish this. Uh, I was going to work another week digging trenches in New England, which was rad. I really enjoyed that. Um, my whole life until... Uh, what? What did you enjoy about digging ditches? I just enjoy manual labor as a as a foil to being an artist. Um, uh-huh. Like, 
whether it's Copper Smith or Mike bike messaging or um or or digging ditches, it's just it's a real job that when you finish it it's over. Um mm-hmm. you don't need to get a pat on the back. Like you you just you just do it and it's done and it's right and that's it. Uh, it's something people yeah. actually need. Um it's so the opposite of being an artist. And I really like how those two things keep me grounded and keep me real. And I think every single, uh, every single guy, especially every single musician, and certainly anyone who wants to go into ministry should have to work a blue collar job for like three years. Um, mm-hmm. Because you don't understand the world until you do. Yeah. I think it was Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag that uh, said something to the effect of that he didn't trust uh, people that were making music that didn't work actual jobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I also say that like same thing in ministry for pastors. Like if you've only yeah. ever known the institutional church, like you, you just don't, there's so much that can't be grasped. So until I was 29, I've never, ever made money off ministry. I've always made money so I could do ministry, which always felt really right. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and it made me evaluate what was valuable and what was worthy. So I took, I was going to finish digging ditches, and go do a, a two-week tour for, for Broken Voice. And this is like 2000, uh, end of 11, beginning of 12. Mm-hmm. And then I was going to start the job at camp. And the last day, one of the last days I was digging ditches, I was just wrecked, man. Like emotionally, I was just wrecked. And I didn't know why. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'm not using it like that. I'm not. That's not like my spiritual norm. Um, but I was digging mm-hmm. ditches with a bunch of lost plumbers who I was trying to just like, like be kind to and share Jesus with. And I was honestly having to work not to burst into tears. And I had no idea why, um, no idea why, like, just like, man, am I, am I like losing my mind? Am I having a panic attack? What is this? I've never had any of those things before. Mm-hmm. So I just gotten out of that relationship and I felt really confident that, that it was supposed to end. And mm. I was, you know, working through it and I finished digging this trench and drove home. It was like six o'clock at night. And I rented a room from a couple in my church. Cause well, honestly, when you've lived with, 15 homeless dudes, you just like living with people. Um, so <laughs> I rented sure. a room from a couple in their, in their like late 50s, went to my bedroom and just like laid on my face just for two hours and was just like, what, what do you want? Like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on right now. And, and I don't expect the whole plan, but I do expect some clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I think God likes to keep us off balance. I think he likes to make us ask for the next step. I think he likes us to have to lean in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't expect the whole plan, but I expect the next step. So, that was my prayer for two hours. It was just like, I'll do anything. Be I've lived uh, far below the poverty line for five years. I think I lived off of $3,000 a year for two years in a row. Um, I've lived mm-hmm. with bed bugs for two years, like whatever, like I'll do it. Just be clear. Um, and after two hours of praying, like the burden just lifted. I don't know how else to say it. It sounds super like Christiany, but that's just how I can do the- mm-hmm. So I was standing up. I was like, well, I'll just go to the gym and lift and then I'll go to bed get ready for work in the morning. But as I was standing up, my phone rang and it was the pastor from the home church I grew up in. And he said, you know, this is, this is pastor drew. I know this is out of left field, but I wanted to ask if you pray about moving back to Virginia and being our worship pastor. Um, (laughs) and I said, well, first of all, it's super flattering. Um, second of all, I have no desire to do that. Um, uh, primarily I have, I had really judgmental thoughts about, um, about, well, I have very I, I, institutional, well, I have church. I wouldn't call culture. those judgmental. I'd call those clear, <laughs> but I have judgmental thoughts about the uh, <laughs> worship pastor. Cause I've met a thousand of them. Um, yeah. and I, I, I mean, I'll just own that this is super judgmental, but 
for the most part, my, my opinion of them were that they weren't good enough musicians to make it in the world as a musician, and they weren't deep enough as pastors to make it in any other way as a pastor. Um, that's, sure. I found, and, and there's certainly many exceptions to that. Um, yeah. But I enjoy a good generalization. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. In good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, yeah, I'm not, uh, uh, I've noticed, I'm very flattered. I've noticed that, but I'll pray about it. And I hadn't, I hadn't lived at home at this point in 11 years. And I didn't even know my dad was on staff, but he wasn't the senior pastor and he didn't have anything to do with this uh, desire to hire. And the guy that was pastor now, I only kind of knew him through my parents a little bit from coming home on the holidays, but I respected him. And so I just prayed through it a bunch and, um, talked through it with my guys and with my band members. And I was like, man, I just, this is like the last, I, I'm very thankful for my home church. It's full of incredible people, but I don't want to be a part of the institutional church. And I'm really afraid mm-hmm. that it'll hurt me and I'll hurt it. Like I will, I will not be able to tamp down the punk rock thing, but so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. and my, uh, a lot of conversations, but my best friend, Jeremiah, who's our bass player finally said, well, it may not be the church you built, but maybe it's the church you're supposed to bless for a while. Um, maybe it's the community you're supposed to be a part of. So we finished that tour and I came home to New Hampshire and, um, my rookie, the guy I lived with had tried to wait up for me. He's from New York. I woke him up and I was like, I'm home. He was like super glad to see me. And, and I was like, Hey, he's helping me unload. We we're being quiet. Cause his wife was already sleeping. And I said, Hey, I got to tell you, uh, my home church called before I left and they asked me to be the worship pastor. And I know that, you know, I'm supposed to start working at that camp next week, but I'm starting to think maybe that this is something God wants me to do for a while. Um, and he started laughing and he looked at me and said, today in church, Linda turned to me and said, Aaron's going to come home and tell us he's going back in a full-time music ministry and he's not going to live with us anymore. And I just laughed. And that, that's the only experience I have like that in my life, Billy. Like I don't have another, I think it's not normative at all. I don't mm-hmm. I think for the most part, God gives us our gifts and our freedom and, and tells us who we're supposed to be and lets us run free. But mm-hmm. I definitely felt led to be at my home church. So it's, this, it's a good season. It's actually gone amazing. It's not been as hard as I thought. They've been super supportive of the band. Um, I'm mm-hmm. opening a lot of homeschool kids' eyes to things they didn't know existed. Yeah. And um, it's a season of submission, but thankfully, uh, most of the guy, all the guys I work with have a really high integrity and love the Lord and are very kind and are very, are, they, don't, they don't understand a lot, but they're really cool with it. So, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that you told that story because one of the main things I wanted to ask you today, um, I did a little bit of reading online and I was reading in this interview where you were talking about struggling, uh, on writing, um, one of your albums, uh, I believe the quote was, uh, 10, 10 seconds, uh, 10 hours for every 10 seconds, yeah. uh, in terms of the writing and that kind of thing. And you kind of mentioned specifically, uh, like wanting to hear from the Lord on, uh, what that was or that kind of thing. And I, because I've had so few of those times, I won't say I haven't had any kind of things where I felt like I was directing me in my life, but definitely not like the audible voice or the, like, I wanted you to kind of just say like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. It's just those, those times when you're just so sure that, that the thing you're saying or doing is, is what he wants said or done. Like we're, we're supposed to be his body. Right. And, and so, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of the best analogy I can use. Like, I love my wife and I'm in love with her. Um, she is my, mm-hmm. I tell her every day, she is my favorite person. And I mean that, mm-hmm. um, she's my favorite person, but I don't always feel like head over heels in love. Everyone who's married knows that you don't wake up and feel that every day. 
Um, if, right. if you expect, that's why most marriages don't work. Cause people have a ridiculous expectation. Um, like commitment has, I love her by being committed, but there are some moments where she does something mm-hmm. and I'm just blown away by it for a second and go, Oh my gosh, I love you. Or she says something that's really clever in a way that she normally wouldn't, but she's very, well, it's very smart, but clever in a way she wouldn't normally be. And I just am blown away by what an awesome human she is. And I feel so thankful mm-hmm. that I get to be a part of her life. And you're just like, whoa, I know I'm in love, but right now I definitely know I'm in love. And there's just a few moments in my life when I could say I have faith in every day, a very calm, quiet, real, maybe call it blue collar faith in God. And he moves in my life in subtle ways and he reassures me with peace and joy. But there are these moments like that, that something happens and you just, you're kind of dumbstruck. And, mm-hmm. and you realize that there's a reality beyond the reality and we're just scratching the surface and, uh, and you just feel thankful, you know, like I, I wrote a song on our new record and I was praying so hard. Like I, I basically were just talking about these really tough questions that people ask Christians that, that we have mm-hmm. some answers for, but you know, like what kind of God makes the world so full of pain? Like, um, how is it good news that we're all like born damned, like right away? Um, like how, mm-hmm. how is it just that God just forgives this wicked thing? Like, and, and what kind of father like would let his son be tortured to death? Like, um, Mm-hmm. And so we were just like, let's just write that song. And I have no clue what we're going to do with those things. But man, we ought to be able to stare those in the face and deal with them. We ought to be able to not not have easy answers, not just go, Jesus is the answer, but like really <laughs> stare that tough stuff in the yeah. face and and own it. And so I sat down to write write that song, having no clue. It was like building a maze and not knowing how it's going to get out of it. Um, right. I called my best friend and I was like, so the maze is awesome. It looks fantastic. And now I've got to find <laughs> something that's not an, it can't be an easy answer, but it has to be real. And, um, I'm not to belabor the point on that song too long, but, uh, it just, the, the kind of clarity that God gave me on it and the way it came out was like, Oh, that feels so genuine and so authentic and not churchy. And I was thinking of like three or four particular people in my life that I was like, man, if, if, if this song can speak to where they're at and there's, it's going to speak to thousands, thousands of people I'll never meet. Um, but I, these are the four guys I know. And it's just a moment of clarity when I just can't imagine how to possibly figure it out. Um, I've basically dug this hole and the lyric just came to me, but sometimes the truth feels more like a person and maybe I'd love you if we ever met, you know, the idea that some people, you just think they're, you know, douches or whatever. You don't meet them. You just think they're, they're, they're dumb or whatever. Then you hang out with him and you're like, dude, you know what, man, he, that guy is actually a really cool guy. Um, and that was kind of just a sentiment, you know, like God's a transcendent almighty being. There's going to be a lot of things we don't understand, but maybe if I spent time with him, maybe, and that's been my big thing with me, even the Bible says, taste to see the Lord is good. So mm-hmm. the song goes further. I'm not going to belabor the point, but like all four of the people that I wrote that song for, um, and other people too, but those four wrote me notes specifically to say, Hey dude, got the new record this song like literally shook me to my core and i sat in my car and wept mm. and it was like wow i don't know how to do that I, what's i don't know how to do that. what's the name of that song it's called open letter it's the last song on our new record and i think it's at this point my favorite song we've ever written so okay we're closing all our shows with it right now and we're getting a really big response from it so um but that's on the ep yeah then from this year yeah open right. letter it's on viscera okay get it right now at your local theater. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, thank goodness. A plug. We all enjoy a good plug. Yeah. yeah. But it's just those moments when you, you just know that like, I'm not smart enough to do that. Right. Um, well, we have this song called Lower Still that we're kind of known. It's like one of our bigger songs. I didn't write the song with the end mm-hmm. in mind. I wrote the whole song, and, and I'm just talking about Jesus is going to humiliate himself for us, not mm-hmm. embarrass himself for us. And the whole song just keeps describing all the things that he has to go through. Lower still, lower still. Like, you know, beat, beat in his mm-hmm. face, tear the skin off his back, lower still. Strip off his clothes, make him crawl through the street, lower still, lower still. Um, uh, hang him like meat on a criminal's tree, lower still. The song goes on and on. I didn't know how the song was going to end. I was just writing it. And then I was sitting at, at this uh, prayer center that we had in our neighborhood. And the end of the song just, it starts describing his, him coming back in his glory. And then I just, it just hit me like, I just wrote down the very last lyric is as he's coming back, as all heads bow lower still. I was like, Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Like I didn't plan that. I'm not that clever. I'm not that smart. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love, I mean, if, if I can encourage, Anyone who has faith to do, I would say, put yourself in places where you have no freaking clue what you're going to do um, for the right mm-hmm. reason, for the right reason. And, yeah. and let him show you what he can do. If you always play it safe, you're never going to really need God. If you don't put yourself in a place where you need faith, you won't have it. Mm. And I think we, we just tend to value safety way too much. Oh, I like to pose those gigantic, seemingly unanswerable questions. That's a good place to start usually. For sure. For sure. Aaron uh, I appreciate your generosity today and your time it was really cool uh, to talk to you and and to hear some of these stories I especially uh, enjoyed hearing about your time in Optimus Park and uh, I would encourage everyone to uh, come see you guys out on the road there and uh, please be safe um, as it's winter and you're on the road well hey thank you for being a man of authenticity and integrity and making uh, art and podcasts and all that that sincere people can enjoy for real it's, a, it's an honor to, to get to be on it. Thanks, man. Well, thank, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, thanks again for doing it. Appreciate All it. All right. God bless. Aaron Stone, everybody. Isn't that a nice young gentleman there? I hope that uh, his Christmas dreams of Star Wars Legos uh, comes true. <laughs> Wasn't it refreshing to hear somebody say that uh, they're trying to just make art and that uh, someone pays them to make records and people pay to see them at shows so they're already successful and they don't have to worry about, quote, making it? I found that to be uh, almost startling in this day and age. Uh, so good on those guys. They're still out there with uh, For Today on For Today's Farewell Tour. So go check them out in the city near you. The opening music clip on today's show was uh, Open Letter, which we talked about in the interview from the Viscera EP, which is their latest release on Face Down Records. The opening and closing uh, Urban Achiever theme show music, as always, were written and performed by Ethan Luck, who you can check out at ethanluck.bandcamp.com. Uh, you can connect with this show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Urban Achiever PC. You can email me anytime at billy at Urban Achiever Show. Dot com. If you'd like to contribute to the program, and I sincerely appreciate those of you who do, you can do that at patreon.com slash urban achiever. I also encourage you to sign up on the email list at urbanachievershow.com. That's it for me, gang. Uh, good to be back. And until next time, keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. 
Hello? Aaron. Yes, is this Billy? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, man, I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. That's okay. I, I, I thought we changed time zones and we hadn't. And uh, to be <laughs> honest, I was just cleaning the van up like a doofus, trying to get ready to drive, not thinking. <laughs> and my phone was on silent. So, oh, no. so thank you for, for being patient. 